those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there was a murmuring among the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Paramines, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Shall we have a further word of prayer? Well, Lord, we want to thank you for the richness and the reality of your word. And we want to ask, Lord, that you would give us the very nub of, and burden of what you want to say this morning. We pray that you would lead us by the power of your spirit. We pray that we would have direction from above. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God of direction. And you are wanting to lead your people into all your purposes. Lord, we look to you, for without you we can do nothing. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And Lord, we just want to say before you, and for the record, as it were, we don't want to be in vain work. We want to be about your business and doing that which is on your heart. So Lord, please lead us. Guide us in our time together, we pray. And we will give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last time when I spoke last week, I mentioned a particular verse from the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 5, the scriptures say this, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And we mentioned how Paul here specifically singles out this attribute of order as something that he is rejoicing about in the Lord. And it just shows us the importance of divine order and us doing things according to the, the Lord's ways within the house of God. And it's very easy, isn't it, isn't it, for us to just simply bring in our own ways, our own purposes, our own desires into the house of God, and we find we get involved with work within God's house that God hasn't actually ordained. Only that which God ordains will go into eternity, because origin determines destiny. And if something hasn't originated with God, it can't end with God. You can't begin some work in the flesh and it end with God. The Lord will only own that which he initiates. And therefore, everything within the house of God needs to begin with God, which by necessity shows us our dependency on God to show us what he wants to do. Therefore, none of us can have our own mandate on what we want the house of God to be. 
We all come together, and as we come together, we pray and we seek to know the mind of Christ. We seek to know what is on God's heart. We seek to be led of him by his spirit. And certainly there's there's a, a weight of responsibility on the leaders in the church to get before God to know something of what is on God's heart for the house of God. And then I would suggest it's good to bring it to the congregation and see how the Lord leads us together corporately. Uh, when we bring things for prayer. We all want to know together, don't we, something of the Lord's heart and the Lord's mind. We go right back to the book of Exodus. Sorry, we went right back to the book of Exodus last week, the very last chapter, chapter 40. And we looked at how Moses only did that which the Lord commanded him to do concerning the erecting of the tabernacle. And you remember, it was only what the Lord commanded he put in place. There was nothing Moses decided to do in the tabernacle that he thought would be a good idea. He got all his instructions from the Lord. And he got his instructions by getting alone with God and praying and seeking the face of God. And you remember, he had to wait six days before he even heard the Lord speak to him. And we mentioned last week, didn't we, that actually some of us struggle to wait six minutes for the Lord to speak to us. But here's Moses He's got the busiest congregation to handle, and he's up the mountain, away from everything, just seeking the face of God, and the Lord gives him the pattern for the tabernacle. It's just tremendous, really. But as our head, the Lord Jesus, he wants to show his way amongst us. He has a particular way for us as a local assembly here. He wants to bring something of his originality upon our fellowship here. No two local assemblies are exactly one and the same. And sometimes there can be a particular emphasis the Lord gives to one particular fellowship that he doesn't give to another. And we need to know what the Lord is seeking to emphasize amongst us. We need to know what the Lord is seeking to focus on amongst us. He has a purpose, he has a mind, he has a will. And he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we need to know what that is so we can flow in the life of it. And as we come into the life of his will, we find that his, his commandments are not burdensome. Actually, we find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. A lot of the time, we run around like headless chickens, don't we, within church life, doing this, that, and the other, because we're doing our own thing. Not because we've got necessarily, necessarily wrong motives, but because we haven't realized the principle that we cannot walk before we firstly sit. We must learn to sit before God before we can come into the walking with God. And that's a principle that applies throughout the the scriptures, really. Just look at Ephesians. First of all, we're seated with Christ. Then we walk with him. Then we stand, says in Ephesians 6 at the end there. So you and I have been brought into a position, firstly, to sit still and listen to God. And yet that's one of the last things we do. It's amazing when you look through the book of Acts, you'll find that here we have the blueprint for the way that the church is to function. What did these early disciples do at first? They didn't run to activity, they ran to God. And our mandate, first of all, as the people of God, is not to bring good ideas into the house of God, is to get before God and ask him what his purpose is with us. That's why the prayer meeting is so important. That's why we need to pray together. That's why we need to come together, seek the mind of the Lord together. The more that can, the better. 
But if you can't meet with us on a Thursday, then maybe there needs to be other arrangements whereby there can be other meetings we can have. Where we have prayer meetings in different areas, we bring together something, collecting together something of what God wants uh, or has laid on our hearts. This is the burden of the Lord, I believe, for us, friends, to know the mind of Christ. Who is head over the church? It's not the eldership. The Bible clearly shows us that the Lord Jesus is head. And what is his purpose? What is his purpose in making us a local assembly? The purpose of the Lord in making us a local assembly is to fill us. What is the church? It's the fullness of him. That's what the scriptures literally say in Ephesians chapter 1 and in the last verse. The church, his body, which is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. God's divine purpose is to sum up everything in the Lord Jesus. That's his intention. So his purpose with us locally will have something to do with filling Something to do with the Lord Jesus being everything. When we begin to understand this, we can get more into the nuciae of what God wants us to do. But without that broader picture of God's purposes, we won't understand the little details. We need to understand what is God's purpose, not just for my life, but what is God's purpose, full stop. And when we know the purpose of God, generally, then it makes it easier for us to know the purposes of God with our lives. You see, if you realize Christ is head and the purpose of God is that the church be filled with the Lord Jesus completely, then you have something of God's desire for this fellowship. Then what do we do? Well, we begin to realize the Lord Jesus is head. We need to be connected to him. You're not going to see a living headless body. We need to be joined to the Lord Jesus. Unfortunately, so often we're shut off in reality, not in doctrine, not in doctrine, but in reality, we're shut off from the headship of the Lord Jesus. We believe in the headship of Christ, but we don't know the headship of Christ. Uh, it's one thing to assent to right doctrine. It's another thing to know it experientially, to know it in reality. But God's desire is not for us to merely come to a place of understanding doctrinally about God's purpose with his church. He wants us to come into the reality of what is written doctrinally. The teaching is unto conform, conformity. It's unto our changing. There's a, practic there's a practical outworking with things. It's not just simply in the area of theory. God wants us to have the right teaching. We must Otherwise, we'll come to the wrong practice. And that's why there's been so much wrong practice in the church, because there's been wrong teaching that the, the practice has been based upon. Got to have the teaching right, but to stay stop at the teaching and never come into the reality would be us just knowing something theoretically. And we can say we believe it's for our best, but we won't know it's for our best until we come into the good of it. So I want to encourage us all. We are all members of the body of the Lord Jesus. We're members one of another. We belong to the Lord Jesus and we belong together 
We are part of the household of God, the church. It's meant to be the pillar of the truth. But truth isn't something that's merely assented to. When you look carefully in the word of God, what do the scriptures show us? The Lord wants us to be a people that worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. In truth and in love. You often find truth isn't just exclusively put by itself. It's usually with something. The Pharisees and the Sadducees actually had some truth. You read about it in Luke chapter 2. They were right about certain doctrines, but when it came to the reality of the doctrine, they were miles off. Isn't it amazing that we can be miles off? <laughs> because our hearts aren't right, even though our doctrine might be. Correct doctrine of itself doesn't necessarily mean that we're correct in our hearts. Satan says things that are true sometimes. Do you think he's correct in what he says? So we've got to be right in our spirits, in the handling of the truth. Because if we don't handle truth in a right spirit, in God's eyes, we handle it wrongly. We've got to be right. And we've got to come in. You know, there's an entering into, brothers and sisters, that we've not known up to now. There's a coming into his rest. Hebrews chapter 4. Have you come into things? Have you come into the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Have you come into the fruit of Bible meditation? Have you come into what God intends for you within the house of God? How will we know? Only by us being joined to our head. Nobody next to you can tell you what you're to do. We need the Lord Jesus in everything. And actually, the center of church life isn't church. This is one of the big errors that we don't realize within the house of God at times. So often we get so wrapped up with church, we lose sight of the Lord. Isn't it amazing? You can get so caught up in church that it becomes your God, rather than the Lord becoming your God. We can be so wrapped up in an area of church life, that becomes our focus, rather than the Lord Jesus becoming our focus. We need to always come back to the Lord Jesus being the center and circumference of everything we do. That he might feel all in all. That he might have the preeminence amongst us. Yes, he has the preeminence. He is first place. But is he first place? Do you see what I'm getting at here? I was reading David and Shirley's book, um, uh, just a little bit of it recently, counting the cost. And in it, David mentions a quote from Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor once said this, if he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And I read that and I thought, oh, what a statement that is. But you say he is Lord of all. And I say, yes, he is, but is he Lord of all? in reality in our lives. This is the issue. It's not how much simply I know of the Word of God. I hope you're seeking to grow in your knowledge of the Word of God. But is He Lord? It's not how many meetings you attend. 
It's not how many conferences you go to. You and I can love to be hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. And the Lord even says in Hebrews about if you would hear his word. You see, then having stated that, he puts us in a bracket all our own. Are we those who want to hear the word? Okay, we are in the company of those who want to hear the word. Then the next exhortation comes on top of that to this particular group that want to be hearers of the word. Do not harden your hearts. Well, he's not saying to those who don't want to hear, do not harden your hearts. Isn't that interesting? He's saying to those who do want to hear, do not harden your hearts. He's not saying to those whose hearts are already hard, He's not saying to the outsider and to the rebel, to the reprobate, do not harden your heart. He's saying, do you want to hear the Lord? Yes, we do. Okay, you want to hear the Lord. Right now, here's the next thing. If you want to hear the Lord, don't harden your heart to what he says to you then. Do you see what I mean? Once we hear the Lord, we're accountable to what we've heard, aren't we? And then it's a matter of a heart response. How are we going to respond to what God says? Brothers and sisters, this is all part of how we're to live as the people of God together. We need to hear the word. We need to do the word. We need to be trained. We need to be changed. What for? To be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. Why? So that he might be all in all. How much of the all has God got in your life? Has he got you lock, stock and barrel? Or just lock, stock? You say, well, I belong to the Lord anyway, so it's all right. A slave can belong to a master, but it doesn't mean he obeys him. The hymn writer got it so right when he said, trust and obey, obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's responding to the word of God that makes every difference in the life. That's the danger of listening to countless sermons on YouTube. You can enjoy them, you can hear them, but your heart is not changed by them. I wonder if we'd be a little bit more careful and discern in how much we watch if we made ourselves accountable to God, that if he spoke to us through that message, we would be willing to change. Then it comes out of the realm of entertainment and into the realm of spiritual reality, doesn't it? Change always requires a cost, which is what we shrink back from, isn't it? <laughs> but with the Lord, cost is always one side of the coin. But it's the only side you'll see until you obey. Once you obey, you see the blessing of the other side. Coming into the Lord, I've never obeyed the Lord and found out that having obeyed the Lord, I'm disillusioned by what I've had to pay for in the process. Andrew Murray wrote a book the blessings of obedience. <laughs> Are we willing to obey? Are we willing to change? Are we willing to come together as the people of God? This is where we use this awful phrase, but let's use it anyway for the sake of understanding. This is where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Where we get into corporate life, it always gets a little bit difficult, and we find it hard to be conformed because we feel we're rubbing against other people. But the Lord does it to bring us, to shape us, to transform us, to show us ourselves. Actually, the Lord brings people that really wind us up sometimes. They have certain things that agitate us, but their, their habits don't seem to agitate other people. It just 
What they do agitates us. And then after three or four months, the penny drops. And the Lord says, see, I brought this blessed person along into fellowship to be a mirror for you. And you think, oh, no. I'm just as bad. We often are more critical in others with the things that we struggle with ourselves. Okay? That's just a fact. But we need to learn to bless each other. Bless and do not curse. Love, don't hate one another. Be the people of God. There's a testimony to be upheld in this church that must be a reality in the midst of a dying world around us. We need to be those that have a degree of love for one another that is above the world's love for one another. This love that we need for one another is a love that costs us something. And a, lo a love whereby we're willing to pay the cost and it delights us to do so because it's going to bless our brother and sister. Brothers and sisters, in reality, this is the body of Christ. We belong together as the people of God. If the Lord Jesus receives somebody, I can't throw them out. I might want to, but I'm not at liberty to. And if I want to, then the Lord has to show me there's something wrong with me. Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 6, please. With that backdrop in mind of the necessity of us knowing reality among us. And there is reality among us. I want to thank God. I mean, I see sometimes, just as I'm going by, just the way that one person's praying for another after a service, or two people are praying for one person, or there's a coming together, there's a helping out one another. And brothers and sisters, I think the Lord's delighted with that. This is what pleases the Father's heart. You know, it's, I'm a father. If I, sometimes, there's a controversy with my children. Very occasionally, no, I can't lie. Okay, there was a controversy this morning. I won't use this morning's controversy as an example because it never got really resolved. But it was to do with match attack stickers. Of all things to be... On a Sunday morning, you're trying to prepare a sermon and your boys are fighting over match attack football stickers. Of all the things. But Christians in church aren't much better, actually. They fight over match-attached football stickers, just spiritual ones. But there are occasions when my boys, I'll leave Bethany out of it because she's my only daughter, I can't say anything against her. Um, when my boys argue a little, and then at the end of the argument, one of them will say, okay, you can have it in all good heart. 
actually says, you can have it, or I'll leave it. You know, as a dad, that gets me more than anything. The willingness to have a cost. And who can quantify what a cost is like? To a child in that moment, it may seem a little thing to an adult, but it may be big to the child. And yet it's willing to give it up. It's willing to do that. To me, that's such a blessing. Now, I wonder how God feels in heaven when one of his children in the church is willing to sacrifice for the sake of another and nobody else knows. That's what the Lord delights in. That's what builds up treasures in heaven. And that's what makes us the body of Christ in reality. Okay. Well, Acts 6 verse 1. Let's read some of these verses, please. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Okay, let's just take this verse to start with. Remember, we're looking at church life in the book of Acts. When you get to chapter 6 and verse 1, you get to the first little hiccup in the early church where there's problems between brethren. Up to now, you go through chapter 2 and all you're seeing is amazing works of God. You're seeing the outpouring of the Spirit of God. You see Peter on the day of Pentecost preaching the gospel. You see people getting saved left, right and center. You see there being trouble from the outside. But then the Lord coming to rescue his saints who are in prison and being released so they're out the next morning preaching the gospel again. Nothing's going wrong with the church. They have everything in common. Nobody thought what they owned was their own. They just gave to each one liberally. They met daily. They broke bread daily. I mean, it must have been amazing, mustn't it? And then you get to chapter 6. And then there's problems. You've got the Grecians. And you've got the Hebrews. Okay? Now... These two, the Grecians, were not particularly happy with the Hebrews, that is the widows, because they were being neglected from the daily ministration. In other words, they weren't receiving the food, the provision that they needed, and it was all going to the Hebrews. Now, these two groups, the Grecians were... Um, Different, different form of group from the Hebrews, okay? Um, the second group, the Grecians, were those that had been scattered amongst the Gentiles, and they spoke the Greek language and used the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and these were called Hellenists from a word meaning Greek or Greek-speaking. So... These were those Jews that had been scattered abroad and, but were Greek-speaking. The others were those that were based in Jerusalem and were Hebrew-speaking. Now, does that make sense? That's why they're called Hebrews, you see. It doesn't take a lot to work these things out, does it? And so there's a problem because the Hebrews are the ones getting the blessing of the provision and the Hellenists are the ones who are going without. So the Hellenists are having a little murmur about it. Okay? 
understandably. What happens? Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So the apostles are saying, this is not our calling. We're not to be running around um, working out who is meant to have the food and who's not. And this Hellenist hasn't got what they're meant to have. And this Hebrew-speaking one is now missing out because the Hellenist has got one, a portion of food that this one had and, then, and all that. And so the apostles saying, this isn't what we're called to handle. Okay. And what do they do? They have wisdom from above. They say, look out among yourselves seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, he's telling the people, you decide, as the congregation, seven people. The apostles do not choose those, who's gonna, those ones who are going to oversee the giving out and the distribution of the food. They're saying, that's not for us to decide. You decide. Seven, they say. And of course you know seven in the scripture is the number of perfection. And there were some requirements, though, that the apostles put on those who should be serving tables. What, is the, what, is the, um, what do they need to be? What kind of people do they need to be? Well, they need to be men of honest report. Okay? They've got to be honest. Otherwise, if you're, let's say, a Hebrew-speaking Jew, you're more likely just to give the food to your own. And leave out the Hellenists because they were scattered anyway and were the real deal, you know? So if you're not honest in your heart over, over things, you're going to be dishonest in your handling of the distribution. So you need to be somebody who's honest. Honesty is very important. It's, it, it's to do with integrity, even within eldership, in any level in the church, integrity is absolutely vital. Do you remember what Paul said to Timothy? Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. He didn't say take heed to the doctrine and yourself. He said, firstly, take heed to yourself. Make sure you're right with God. Make sure these things are worked into your life and take heed to the doctrine as well. So actually, is there integrity? Is there honesty? If somebody's going to handle this distribution, you've got two different groups, you've got to be somebody who's honestly going to handle this rightly. Why? Because you're part of the household of God, and you're representing the Lord Jesus. So what happens? Well, they have to be of honest report. Secondly, they have to be full of the Holy Ghost. What a tremendous statement that is. We're talking about distribution, and if a person's going to be used as somebody who can distribute honestly, fairly, oversee it, he's got to be somebody who's filled with the Holy Ghost. 
Amazing. What else does he say? The Holy Ghost and wisdom. So you've got to know the wisdom of God in how you're handling the distribution because there may be times when there's less to hand out. What are you going to do then? Are you going to know the wisdom of God and how to handle it? There may be time where there's plenty. There may be time where there's not. There may be time where there's more Hellenists. There may be time when there's less. All the difficult intricacies of handling something like this without the wisdom of God is bound to end in failure. We need the wisdom of God. The Lord Jesus distributed food, didn't he? Do you remember? And he just handed it out, and he handed it out, and he handed it out, and he handed it out, just from one basket, but there was the miraculous that took place. Would it not be the case that if there's not much, that perhaps the servant of God needs to be filled with the Spirit to believe that God will distribute more than what he's got in his hands? You need to be filled with the Spirit to be like that. What does he go on to say? He speaks about whom we may appoint over this business. Whom we may appoint over this business. What is the type of service we're finding demonstrated here? We're finding demonstrated the work of a deacon. Okay? But deacon isn't even mentioned in this passage. Hallelujah. <laughs> Best to have people fulfilling the office before they have the title. Every time. People love to have a title. Whether it's PhD in chemistry from Oxford University or whether it's Apostle Peter, I don't know, Philpot from South Africa or wherever. We love the titles. Aren't they great? They just give us an identity and a kudos. We're something. You know. Particularly if we're not good enough to get PhDs. To have, be called Apostle is pretty good, isn't it? I mean, it's, it just sounds great. I'd like to be called an apostle if I'm really honest. I mean, the problem is I haven't got the ministry. So. <laughs> but in this passage, nobody's called a deacon. It simply says that they've got to be honest, filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and somebody that they can appoint over the business. You see, a deacon isn't somebody who just every week makes their forehead full of sweat by rushing around, putting out the chairs, the tables, making sure the computer works, making sure this works, making sure they do that, and they're running around like this. And the one who does the most practical work in the church is a deacon. That's not it. Do you know what's interesting about this passage? It says this. Whom we may appoint over this business. In other words, a deacon is somebody who has to oversee the running of practical things. 
It doesn't mean that necessarily they are doing it all themselves. They may do most of it themselves. But what they are doing is overseeing the running of that particular element or sphere of their leadership, of their being a deacon. So, for example, let's say there's a deacon who, and this isn't the case, but there's a deacon who's in charge of the sports hall. Everything that goes up in the sports hall, that person is in charge of. It doesn't mean they do everything in the sports hall. It means they oversee the running of that so that it's done biblically in a right way with the wisdom of God and with the enabling of the Spirit. Yes, a deacon is more likely to be practical, but they've got to oversee. And so they've got to be even in a position where they can delegate. They can actually see what's going on. There's Sunday school classes that go on in there. So they've got to oversee what's happening in preparation for things to be put up. Is everything ready? Is, is there other people that can help out? These kind of things, you see. That's much more of the essence of what a deacon does. But a deacon is not somebody who's, who simply rushes around putting up tables and chairs. It's somebody who is given the uh, calling of God upon their lives to oversee the practical preservation and spiritual outworking of something practical. Who wants to be a deacon? <laughs> okay. But notice what we go on to read in verse 5. Verse 5, please. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. So faith is involved with this. And of the Holy Ghost, and these other names that I so awfully um, tried to pronounce just a moment ago. I'll spare myself the embarrassment this time. But you see, it says in verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. There was a collective amen. There was something within the whole of the people that said, yes, this seems good to us. Remember, this is the apostles coming to the multitude of the, of the saints, telling them what they think needed to happen, and the multitude respond by saying, that's good. That's of the Lord. Do you see what I mean? So it's not as though the apostles were there to simply boss the church about. And these are apostles. These, these are the real deal. High. You don't get bigger than the apostles, do you? And yet, they share with the group what needs to be done, and then they they give it over to the congregation to decide who the people should be. And the whole saying pleased the congregation. There's harmony, there's concord, there's unity. It's not bullying tactics, is it? This is the way the church should be, friends. And actually, in leadership, we may feel by, of the Spirit of God that we're to go in a certain direction... But then to bring that before the congregation and share with the congregation some of these things is important. Because we may pray collectively and then there's not a witness in the body. 
And then we need to think, well, have we got that right? Do you see what I mean? Yes, the decision is with the eldership. And if the elders choose to go against the will of the congregation, in spite of the fact that the congregation seem to be led of the Lord, then there's trouble for the leadership. But generally speaking, I mean, I'll give you an example. I used to be at a church fellowship that knew what it was, and still do, to function under the headship of the Lord Jesus. And the leadership brought a certain thing that they felt the church should do. And I remember being in the prayer meeting, and we all prayed together, and there was just a dispeace about this particular idea. And so the elders withdrew their plans and let it go. It takes quite a lot to do that. But generally speaking, the elders have got to gauge what is of the Lord in the congregation. They're the ones that are called to lead. But if they're not mindful of what one and other is saying, under the anointing of the Spirit of God, that is, then we can find ourselves in trouble, can't we? This is where we need to submit to one another. Let's say, for example, somebody in the congregation feels from the Lord something that is clearly of the Lord, but I don't feel I felt something differently. I have to submit to the Lord in that person and change my mind if what I'm thinking isn't what the Lord's given. Do you see what I mean? So we, we need that kind of corporate life to keep us together. Well, I just think it's wonderful the way that the apostles handled this matter of the difficulties within the church. Right from the start, they have the wisdom of God, the seven ordained. But then notice something else here. It's about neglecting the daily ministration. Did you notice that word? There was to be a giving out daily. And this is one of the key words in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. It's daily, daily, daily. Do you know there's so many of churches, and we can all be like it, where we don't see one another from one end of the week to the next, or we're not in contact with one another from one end of the week to the next. And then people slip away from the faith. But in the early church, they met together daily. The apostles would be preaching daily. The Lord Jesus in the synagogue would be preaching and teaching daily. So I'm looking forward to seeing you here tomorrow. 10.30 start. <laughs> the thing is that without continual encouragement, if we're by ourselves, the enemy can pick us off. We need one another to keep us going. There's no such thing as an individual's church. Yeah? We need one another. We need to hold each other accountable to the Lord and to one another. We need to be able to pray for one another. We need to be able to look after one another. There may be practical needs for one another. But the thing is, we are more likely to find ourselves falling away or becoming slack if we find ourselves just turning up once a week when the enemy's working seven days a week. The enemy doesn't take a day off. But we can be so slack about 
gathering together, can't we? Well, I can't be bothered this week. No, no, no. Don't forsake the gathering of ourselves together, especially as we see the day approaching. We're to gather regularly. We're to meet regularly. And when we can't meet, why don't we phone somebody or pray over the phone or send a text message or an email or some kind of means of being in touch to encourage one another, to build each other up. This is what we're called to do. I believe it's something of this daily life that the early church had that meant that there was such blessing. And you find that the Lord added to their numbers daily because they were meeting daily. Well, do we want to see people saved from hell? Do we want to see the work of God increase? Do we want to see the Lord glorified? We don't want to put meetings on for meeting's sake. I believe it needs to be organic. I believe it needs to be something that the Lord does amongst us. Not just arranging lots of meetings so we meet together every day. No, no, no. But let's ask the Lord that he would do the bringing together. And it would be real. It would be something God does. Some of you, you live further out, but you live near each other. Why not get together now and again? That kind of thing. Just making it practical, really. The, the last thing I just want to mention about this is that notice right from the early church there is an emphasis on practical need for widows. Often we think of the book of Acts as the dynamic outworking of supernatural miracles in the early church. And it is. It certainly is. You just go to chapter 5, uh, sorry, chapter 4, and you'll find that when they're filled with the Holy Ghost, there was, there was just marvelous things that went on. There was extraordinary things that went on. Miraculous happenings and people were saved. It was miraculous. But notice there's also provision for practical need within the early church. This church hadn't been going long, but here they are, and they're seeking to meet the needs of these widows and provide for them with bread, with food. And we must not fight spiritual gifts against practical help. And sad to say, often you go to some churches and all they're looking for is signs and wonders. That's all they're going after. Just whether they can find some kind of... And it gets to such a state of the spurious coming in because the signs and wonders become their God. And they were looking for any kind of experience that they can have. But practical needs aren't met. And then you go to other churches and it's all about practical needs. They don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. They don't really want to... They shy away from talking about the power of the Spirit. But they're very good are practically helping one another. And they have different systems put in place to go out and help the widows and, and provide for those in need and be a witness that way. But why do we so often emphasize one and not the other? Within the house of God, both belong together. Both belong together. Some focus on practical needs, others focus on spiritual gifts but they are not to be put aside from one another. The house of God that is filled with the Spirit must be practically concerned for those who are genuinely widows. 
Must be. How is it possible not to be? So we desperately need, within our, um, within our uh, corporate life, to know what it is to reach out to one another's practical needs. Now, you'll find that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there are conditions for the giving out of distribution to widows. So 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul lays out what the conditions are. Are we just to give to widows? Whoever they are in the church, as long as they're widows, we give out to them. Well, this is where wisdom comes in. This is why you need deacons who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. <laughs> Should you, the church be given financially to a widow whose son is a millionaire? <laughs> the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> Look what it says. Verse 3. Honour widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, that word nephews, by the way, can mean grandchildren. It means descendants. Let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. In other words, if the children have money to provide for the parents, if the children have the wherewithal, they're working themselves, they've got a, a mother who's a widow, they are the ones that are firstly to provide for the widow, not the church. Okay. Not the church. Look what he goes on to say. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that lives in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. There you go. Practical, isn't it? You know you can go to the biggest high-flying church in the world. You can be an elder in the biggest church in the world. And you know your mother hasn't got any money. And you get the wonderful salary from the church. And you don't help your mother, who's in another church, a church that hasn't got much money, but they have to help her because I'm not helping her. And then God says that would make us worse. That means we've denied the faith. And it's a practical issue, isn't it? Isn't that amazing that it's possible to deny the faith, not by saying, I deny the faith, but by not practically supporting your own mother who's a widow. Wow. Practical Christianity is where it starts to hurt, doesn't it, a bit? Look what he goes on to say. But if any provide for, we said that, 
Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. It's amazing how the widows' sort of numbers are whittling down, aren't they, as I speak? Okay. Let's go down to verse 16 and sum it up. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. In other words, you stop the church giving to the widows that really are widows, who really haven't got any children to provide for them. You stop the money going to them. If you don't pay for the needs of your own mother if you have the wherewithal to do so. And so those who are genuine lose out. We've got to be careful. You see, this is where wisdom is required, isn't it? Where we need wisdom. Are we to be those, dear friends, that care for the widows much? James chapter 1, please. Final verse. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Notice the word affliction, please. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. Whose duty is that? Who do you reckon? Everyone, okay. Not the eldership. It's everyone, right? <laughs> We're all, as whether it be elders or whether it just be generally. Maybe you know somebody who's a widow. Pure and undefiled religion is visiting them and saying, let me sit with you. Let's talk about the Lord together. Let me pray for you in whatever need you've got. It's not glamorous. But it seems to me the Lord's more impressed with that which isn't glamorous. Which doesn't get the church news headlines. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's what the scriptures say. But that love for one another isn't simply emotional. It's a love that requires cost in it. Because the love that we're required to give to one another is the very love of the Lord. And that love is a costly love. It's not simply sentimental. You don't have to fill bucket loads for the person you do something for. It's just a case of doing it because you want to help them. May the Lord give us the grace, brothers and sisters, to be like the early church in Acts that was concerned for the distribution of the widows.
It's an element that we often miss out when we think of early church life, isn't it? We think of the outpouring of the Spirit. We think of the speaking in tongues. We think of the miraculous. We think of all these things. But we don't think about chapter 6. And about the distribution. There are needs that you have that are, may not be physical needs. What I mean by that? I don't think any of us are really starving here. But there are needs that you have that may be of a different nature to physical needs. That's where we come in together as the people of God. That's why we need to be daily helping each other. Paul said to the church in Rome, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. If we love the Lord, we will love one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And he who loves has been born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. May the Lord help us to come back to Acts. The power of the Spirit, absolutely. We're missing that so much. The outpouring of the Spirit in the presence of God. Without that, we're lost. Yes, the gifts of the Spirit, the supernatural, with every, with every fiber in me, I say amen to that. But not to the neglect of the practical and loving those who are really widows and being together as the people of God. I have to say, I'm not perfect in this area at all. But I want to grow in this matter and I want us all to learn together as the church of Jesus, not how to expose one another's problems, but how to cover one another's needs. We're fighting for each other. There's enough fighting we have to do with the enemy out there. God delights it when we show this sacrificial love one to another. Sometimes it means being frank with people. <laughs> but not being frank in a nasty way. You have to earn the respect of the person you talk to before you speak strongly to them. I think personally. Unless you have a clear mandate from the Lord. We need to be those that push one another on so that when people come in they say this place is different they love one another it's just different there's so many people out there dear friends and I see them and sometimes I have to deal with situations where it's from broken homes and families these days where a child has grown up not knowing love from either parent where are they going to find the love of the Lord? Let's imagine they come into a service here. Will they find the love of the Lord outworked in our lives one to another? I really hope so. May they find in the Lord the one who can truly mend their broken hearts. But this testimony of the love of God one to another will increase in the last days.
and be increasingly mean, meaningful as generally love is growing cold everywhere. Genuine love, it really is. Everywhere. Oh, may the Lord make us a people that were like the early church. That give out, that give out by the grace of God. Even daily, if the Lord would will, one to another, shall we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much. Firstly, for the fact that you love us with an everlasting love. We want to thank you, Lord, that in the book of Acts, amidst all the dramatic and wonderful scenes of miracles and healing and divine power and the forces of darkness being pushed back, we find the people of God giving out to the people of God on a daily basis. Lord, we know there was a mess up there and some were missing out, but we thank you that that was sorted out. And Lord, we do ask of you that you would give us wisdom. You would enable us to be filled with the Spirit of God. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to know how to be the people of God so that when the broken come, Lord, when, Lord, Father, when the, when the man comes in who, who, whose wife has gone from him or whose wife come in, whose, man, whose husband has just betrayed him, betrayed her, the child who only knew abuse from her father, would find here the love of our Heavenly Father. Oh Lord, if they can't find it here, oh God, please help us. So Lord, we're looking to you. We don't want to try and work anything up of our flesh. We don't want to try and make things happen of ourselves. We know the answer is to be filled with the Holy Ghost. So please would you do it, Lord. And may we be a blessing to one another. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you, everybody. I hope you have a lovely time of fellowship together.